Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, this is uh, week two, if you missed last week, of our countercultural conviction series. I suppose today um, in subject matter could always be the biggest, brightest, tallest, first of all the subject. Today is uh, the discussion of Jesus. And to be more precise, it's that we believe that Jesus is the only way to the Father. Did you hear what I just said? Okay. That one right there either brought warm fuzzies to your heart or it drives you crazy. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only name, the scripture says, by which men must be saved. He describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life, which means something, right? It means that all our ways aren't ways and all other truths aren't truths. In a world of relativism that says that there aren't anything, things like absolutes, that uh, truth is self-defined, like you just figure out whatever it is you particularly want, and, and you can have your own category of truth. Jesus suggests that that's not possible because he declares himself to be the one and only, all right? And what we confess here at, at, at Redemption is that we believe God's word is true, that God's word is infallible, that it is God-breathed, according to Paul. We believe it, that Jesus is the word of God, and he is the very son of God sent to redeem his people by his sacrifice. That's our confession. We did this last week. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to read to you kind of a written statement of our confession of Christ alone. And it goes like this. Jesus is truly God and truly man, the only one in whom salvation is found. We believe that moved by love and in obedience to his father, the eternal son became human the word became flesh, truly God and truly human being, one person in two natures. The man Jesus, the promised Messiah, Savior, King of Israel, was conceived through the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and, and was born to, of the Virgin Mary. He perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father, lived a sinless life, performed miraculous signs, was crucified under Pontius Pilate, arose bodily from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven. As our mediator, he is seated at the right hand of God the Father, exercising in heaven and on earth all of God's sovereignty and is our high priest and righteous advocate. We believe that by his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension, Jesus Christ acted as our representative and substitute. He did this so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, he canceled sin, appeased God's wrath, and by bearing the full penalty of our sins, reconciled to God all those who believe. By his resurrection, Christ Jesus was proved righteous by his Father, broke the power of death, and defeated Satan, who once had power over it, and brought everlasting life to all his people. By his ascension, he has been forever exalted as Lord and has prepared a place for us to be with him. We believe that salvation is in no one else, for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. No human being can boast before him. That's our confession. Amen? Let's pray together and thank him for it. Lord, that, uh, the depth of that statement <clears throat> is impossible in our human minds to arrive at. We need help. Scriptures tell us that uh, the good news is foolishness to those who are per perishing. But it's the power of God to those who are being saved. So God, when you move on us in power through the Holy Spirit, out comes the confession that Jesus is the Son of God sent to rescue and make a way. 
God, in a world where every bit of truth is thrown up into the wind and the word now doesn't mean anything, here we are today to confess one absolute truth that applies to all people, all places, and all times. So God, help us. Keep me square. Give me the words to say, and I pray you'd give us the hearts to hear. And it's in Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. You don't even know a lot of these verses that we're going to bring before you today. John 14, verse 6, Jesus makes a claim of exclusivity where he says that, that he is the way to life in the Father and that he is truth. He himself is, is truth, which means something. It means outside of Jesus, there isn't truth. Truth isn't feelings in spite of what culture says. It's not what, what's popular. It is... Uh, not how things appear to be. Truth is definite, specific, particular. Jesus claims that he is truth. One writer I was reading this week helped, at least helped me understand a little bit more in like detail of the amazing claim of Jesus to declare himself to be truth. Let me, let me throw these words at you and you'll see why the claim that Jesus makes is pretty, pretty huge. He says that first of all, truth is divine. It doesn't come from the world. It comes from God. Which, uh, let's be fair, wherever you're going to feel tension this morning, it will probably be because the world is speaking a bigger, better word than what God speaks, and yet truth is divine. Truth is also absolute. In other words, tr truth is sovereign. It's the definitive standard. It's never arbitrary. It's not conditional. Truth is truth. Truth is objective. Truth is black and white, conveyed in clearly defined words, and truth is defined by God's word. Truth isn't a feeling, okay? Truth is singular. What God said to one generation, he says to all generations. Truth, one truth, and Jesus is that truth. Truth is immutable. In other words, truth doesn't change. The reason why truth doesn't change is because all truth is God's truth, and God never changes, and truth therefore doesn't change. It's immutable. Truth is authoritative. When truth speaks, God speaks. You've heard this said before. When the scripture speaks, God speaks. It's authoritative. It isn't just interesting. You don't just sit under the word of God and go, well, that's fascinating that they have that take on it. The scriptures don't allow you to have an indifferent kind of distant relationship with it. It says it is or it isn't. And you can reject it or you can receive it, but you can't sit in the middle with it because it declares itself to be authority. It has the right to make demands on your life. That's authority. That's truth. Truth is powerful. Truth convicts. Truth changes people. And truth is determinative. In other words, your relationship with truth will decide your life and your eternity and of everyone else who ever lived. Truth will. Now you see why when Jesus says, I am the truth, um, that claim right there explains why throughout 2,000 years that there has been such a strong reaction to Jesus. Some would say, some of you are here, he's king. I love it, he's king. And some would look at it and say, that's nuts. And I don't serve him. Uh, let me take you to a narrative this morning that will help expose the reason why there's such a visceral reaction to Jesus and his claims. It's in Acts chapter 4. You're going to know this narrative. Acts chapter 4, 1 through 
uh, whatever, 12 we're gonna read today. Let me, as you turn there, give you a little setup so we're contextually in the right place. If we back up into the Gospels, Jesus has done what he's done, said what he said, and went to the cross to die our death, and he rose from the dead. That's the story. Fast forward to Acts. And he promised that, that the church would get a helper. The Holy Spirit would come. And at Pentecost, he, the Holy Spirit did come and totally radically empowered God's people. Amazing things are happening with the church and things like in chapter three. Peter and John are off their way to the temple to pray and they walk by a beggar who's been sitting there in the road forever. A man who can't walk and his whole full-time job is to beg for someone else to provide. And he does what he does every day. He just calls out randomly to people. Hey, sir, can you provide? And it was Peter and John he makes that request of. And Peter says, I don't have what you're asking for, but I got what you need. And he says to the man, in Jesus, rise. This man has been crippled his whole life, stands and walks, legs made straight. Well, you know in a culture and a city like that, that story ran like wildfire. Undeniable, this man was changed. And then Peter and John started to tell people why and how it happened. The Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, delivered him and raised him to walk again. Peter starts preaching this message, and the message is really simple. This message of the good news has always been simple, right? Believe in Jesus, turn from your sin, repent, and be saved. And that's the message of, of Peter and here in verses one through seven, you're gonna find something that's always happening in our world and our culture, and that is there's great opposition to Jesus. This passage helps us understand why. First seven verses. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000 people. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? I think it's interesting here, the extreme reaction. The text says they were greatly annoyed. I think that's more subtle than it should be stated. Um, but it says something about the nature of opposition to Jesus that's always existed. It exists in this room, by the way. People have a problem with Jesus. Let's understand a little bit about the Sadducees and the leaders, and you'll, you'll get the point, and uh, hopefully we can make it this morning and why these Sadducees are particularly upset, greatly annoyed. See, the leaders were from the Sanhedrin, the highest ruling body of the Jews. It was made up of 70 leaders plus the high priest who was sort of the president of the, of the club, as it were. There were three groups mentioned in verse five, rulers, elders, and scribes, and there are two parties. Those would be the Pharisees, I'm certain you've heard of before, and then the Sadducees. Let me tell you just kind of the role that all of them played, and you're going to see why it got really annoying for the Sadducees. The rulers were the chief priests of the temple. They were responsible for the priestly functions, performing the sacrifices, and responsible for the purity of worship. That was their job. 
The elders were the tribal heads of the, of the nation and the scribes were the experts of the law who kind of interpreted the law and how to live it out and then, and then the daily practice of it. And these two kind of religious parties in the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees, you're familiar with, and then the Sadducees. Let me just walk through what I'm assuming you know about the Pharisees or have heard before. The Pharisees were committed to the preservation of the law to every minute detail. Right? Whatever, whatever those particulars of law and commands are, we got to do that. They had a spiritual mindset, unlike the Sadducees. They, they hated foreign occupation. That's why they were so stressed about Rome being in the way. They uh, believed in the spirits. They accepted the idea of a resurrection, at least the possibility of a resurrection. They were waiting for the coming Messiah, although their particular perspectives and positions meant that there had to be one like really narrow version. They couldn't see Jesus in, in the Messiah. So... They had some presumptions there. Most of them came from the trade class and they were legalists to the 10th power. You, I'm certain, are aware of some of that narrative of the Pharisees. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were aristocracy. They owned most of the land, had most of the wealth. They had immense power and they collaborated with the conquerors as a way to maintain their position of wealth and power over the people. Some of this is going to sound very familiar to politics, by the way, and I suppose if I were to do a sermon on politics, I'd talk about Sanhedrin and politics, but I'm not doing that. That's for some other time. But these guys wanted peace at all costs because they didn't want anything to upset the powers that be, and the powers that be are them. We control things. They were wealthy, and they controlled the purse strings. Now, theologically speaking, they were at odds with the Pharisees on most things. See, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection. It was absurdity to them. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in the spiritual world. They didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't look forward to the coming of a Messiah. And, and if you're really going to understand the Sanhedrin and understand why they had such a problem with the sermon that Peter was preaching and the exclusivity of Jesus in the sermon and the resurrection of the sermon, all you gotta know is that when the Sadducees hear resurrection talk, to them it's the same thing as revolution talk, and any version of revolution means they lose power and platform and position. You understand? Don't change a thing. Because if anything happens, if people go another way, then we lose. Sound familiar? Now you know why it would be like a good politics talk. But the clear difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees is that the Pharisees opposed Jesus for theological reasons. He claims to be God. I got a problem with that. He disobeys the law. He does work on the Sabbath. And he hangs around with sinners. That was their response to Jesus. The Sadducees opposed Jesus for political reasons. In its simplest version, this resurrection talk threatened their gig. And that's how you have to see this. And that's why they're greatly annoyed with this conversation. Um, a little bit closer, and you'll see how personal it is to a couple of the guys that show up in this story. In verse 6, it mentions Annas and Caiaphas, the high priest, who, if you follow the gospel, see them show up periodically through the life of Christ. In fact, they're the ones who kind of ramped up the charges of blasphemy that put Jesus on the cross. And they're here now making sure this resurrection talk goes away. Again, just for clarity, Annas and one of his five sons, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, had been the high priest for years and years and years. 
They had owned that position. And, and you could say it was just a family business. Like we're in the control business. We're in the political business. We're in the business of managing um, our culture. And they worked really hard to keep that position. You see, before the Roman occupation, the role of high priest was a life term. Like you became high priest, it wasn't until you died, until Rome came in. And they knew that would be a problem, so they basically sold the position to the highest bidder year after year. And the, not only did you have to meet the price, you had to agree to collaborate with Rome. So now you know why the, the, San, the, the, the Sadducees were kind of hated, the high priest and his family specifically in the culture, because they were sort of traitors. And they just paid for their position. And you want to know where they got their money? Extortion. Because it was the high priest that controlled the animal sacrifices in temple worship. And guess what else they had? They controlled the animal inspectors. So if you were going to get a sacrifice, which you all had to do, and you had to get the right animal, they controlled the whole thing. It was a racket. They made money at it. So when Jesus shows up at the temple to overthrow the money changer's table, he was messing with the high priest's money gig. You understand? At that point, they knew they had to get rid of Jesus. He's in the way of our control. You understand? So, here comes John and Peter. Peter starts preaching. Sick people start getting healed. And they tell others, they tell everyone, here's how. The resurrected Lord did it. Well, now you know why the, why the Sadducees had to get rid of Peter and John. Now you know why they were arrested. It's obvious from that vantage point to see why the Sadducees were so upset with the healing uh, that happened in the disciples' work and message. Well, what do you think about what's going on here today? You know what happens a lot of times? We read narratives and go, isn't that fascinating for them? (laughs) True for them, how does it apply to me? It's good to know, I guess. But I think this is more than just a story about a day in the life of an apostle or from a position to see the evil motives of the Sadducees and go, how terrible of people they are. That'd be a wasted narrative if we didn't stop to do some work in our own heart this morning. So let me do it with a series of questions, maybe. This is where it starts to feel a little cramped in here, but do you think that we share anything in common with Sadducees? You know what I think? I do. I think there's a potential Sadducee or a part of one sitting in every seat in the house, including up here. Here's why. Because if I boil down the definition, at least something for us to understand here of the Sadducees, you'll know why I think it's something we struggle with. A Sadducee is upset anytime Jesus threatens something you love. Now are we getting close to home? Perhaps. So I guess the question to ask if that's true is where does Jesus bother you? Where does he threaten your gig? I, I know this is oversimplification, but let me just split the room in two, okay? Those of, us, those of us who would say, I follow Jesus. I, have, I see how he describes himself, all those songs that we sang, the confession of Jesus alone, that he was God, came in the flesh, died, died my death, went to the cross, rose again to give life to the dead. I, 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 that's my confession, Jesus alone and no other. That's the Christian side of the room. But I'd be naive to think that there isn't the other side of the room that has also been kind of at least in neutral regards to Jesus, if not in opposition 
To you, Jesus might be a good moral figure. He might be an interesting historical character, but you have not moved him over into the God category yet, nor savior of your sins. And so to him, he's just kind of there. He's there because you're sitting with someone like your wife or your husband or whatever. You're just, you just know about Jesus, but you don't embrace Jesus. You haven't submitted to the Jesus of scriptures because you've got problems with Jesus. And I, I get that. I respect that. So I just want to talk to both of us here as, as it relates to the Sanhedrin and all of us. You might, if you were one of those who say you don't follow Christ, or at least you haven't got to the place of trusting in Christ, you might say, well, I'm indifferent because I don't believe. I'm absolutely neutral in Jesus. He doesn't bother me whatsoever because I don't put him in any category. He's just there, right? I would probably argue with that. I think Jesus does bother you. Let me, me kind of prove my point. Because even you who would say, I haven't yet arrived on what I think of Jesus. You know enough of what Jesus says to know when he bothers you. When Jesus says he he is the way and the truth and the life, definitive articles, every one of them, he says every other way is wrong. And he says, you don't know what you're doing. Welcome to the offense. When you hear that Jesus requires all of your life, well, that's upsetting, right? Right? It's too much to give. All of my life, all of my stuff, all of those things. We're control freaks. We want to be in control. And you perceive that kind of call to follow and submit as uh, a harder life than you have time for. I think he bothers us. When you hear Jesus say to walk on obedience to all, big word there, all that he's commanded, and it's upsetting. And I don't mean to be offensive, but let me just talk about it because I used to be a non-follower of Christ too, so I can tell you from my own vantage point, that's upsetting because my rebel heart doesn't want to obey anything but my appetites. I'd rather be in charge and I want to go my way. And so when Jesus says, no, 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 follow all of my commandments, I go, all of them? How about some of them? How about a couple? All of them? Mm. And that's where it gets upsetting, right? Because he comes after everything. When he calls you a sinner, it's upsetting because you think you're a good person. And you're choosing to measure your goodness on kind of horizontal comparisons. Like you find other people you're better than and go, I'm all right. And that's not how the scriptures say you define good. Jesus wants to rearrange your entire life and you want to keep things status quo. Guess what? You're a Sadducee. Don't change anything. Don't affect anything. I want to be in control. Okay, there's another group in the room, and these are the people, um, I'm assuming, who know what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus because you directly connect it to a confession that you make about Jesus. And it comes kind of in uh, hard conversations and the kind of joyous conversations that my story and my condition in sin is so broken that when the scriptures say I'm dead in my transgressions, it really does define me spiritually and that the only hope is Jesus who can resurrect my heart, right? To those of you who would make that confession, I would suggest to you that we also struggle with this idea of, uh, of being a Sadducee. I think that's true. When he commands you to love your neighbor as yourself and we're more um, in a hurry to make a list of who our neighbor isn't, than just to love our neighbor as ourself. 
You know that happens, right? I mean, that's an easy thing to say, love your neighbor as yourself. And then what happens typically in the human mind is to consider, like, every, like everybody? Can I, can I write them off the list of neighbors so I don't have to love them? Does that not happen in the church? When he says love your enemies, now this is picking up the pace here on this love thing. Okay, your neighbor, maybe, your enemy, impossible, right? And pray for those who persecute you. Well, that one, that's just easy just to disregard completely. That's absurd. Love your enemies? I'm more, I'm more wired to hate. People don't think like me, don't vote like me, don't do like me. I'd just rather just write them off, just kind of label them. God, you want me to love them, my enemies? When he says, don't store up your treasures here on earth, and yet you refuse to invest in the kingdom, and you have a thousand reasons why. I, I, I said this last hour. I don't know if this makes any sense. It's probably a sermon for another day, but I was actually thinking about how pathetic I am at teaching about money in the church. And it could be because of my culture that I grew up in. You know, my whole generation invented all the scoundrels who took money in church. So we kind of backed away from that and said, let's just keep it pure. Let's convince people that we're... But we stopped teaching on a biblical narrative on what God says about treasures and giving. And I don't... I mean, some people do it a lot. And so I, my suspicion, my cynical mind goes, why do they do it? And, and we don't do it at all. So somewhere there's in the midst. But let me just say this. Jesus said, do not, imperative, do not store up here. And yet, we do. And we don't invest in his work and we don't invest in his kingdom and we have a thousand reasons why. He makes you uncomfortable, doesn't he? When Jesus ties on a slave apron and bends down to wash feet and he says, hey, 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 follow me, do the same thing. And we go, wait a minute, you don't know my position. I'm a president. I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a this. I'm too old, I'm too young, I'm too tall, I'm too short, I can't bend down. I don't serve like that. When you don't understand that the only way to follow Christ is to follow in his service, that's uncomfortable. Like, I don't want to do that. I'd rather be served, right? When Jesus says to forgive one another, we're so, we're so much better at making files on each other than forgiving one another. Do you understand what I'm saying? That in this example of the Sadducees, this isn't just a story about them persecuting the church because Jesus offends them. It's a story about us and the way that Jesus bothers us, too. He cramps our style. He gets in the way of our control. The question, I suppose, that should be asked at some time like this is, so maybe you, how are you opposing him? How are you hearing what he says and giving reasons why it doesn't apply to you? Yeah, that's one part of this sermon. Here's the second part, and this is where we get into the powerful exclusive statements that are made by Peter regarding Jesus. It's in verses 8 to 12, and that is this 
Amazing statement that salvation is found in no one else other than Jesus. Verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that you rejected, the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, right there is the reason why there's such a most visible or, or visceral reaction to Jesus. That kind of statement there. This absolute exclusive statement. That's what's unpopular. Salvation, no other place. No other saviors. That statement is called a universal negative, which just simply means a statement allowing for no exceptions. And in an age of like language of tolerance, which is a lie, you know that's not true. There's no such thing as tolerance in our culture, but we like to talk it. This is the most intolerant statement you could possibly make. Think about it. If you don't confess Jesus, everybody who doesn't confess Jesus is a fool. Not because they want to be. They picked another way, and there is no other way. Do you get it? That's tense. So why, why does it have to be so exclusive? Why can't God just loosen up a little bit? Why can't he just give some room for sincere people? You know, good-hearted people, people who just come from the different side of the tracks. Why can't, why can't God just cut them some slack? In other words, why is Jesus the only way? I'll give you some answers. Jesus is the only way to salvation because he's the only one qualified to deal with our sin problem. I'm gonna read to you a passage you're very familiar with, maybe a little bit more context too. Um, John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only exclusive son of God. There is only one son of God. There is only one savior and there's only one capable of saving. Why? Because Jesus was truly God and truly man, born of the Holy Spirit to a virgin. To make atonement for sin, he had to be both. Otherwise, there is no forgiveness of sin. Let me take you a couple of passages. Let's look at Philippians chapter two, if you want to turn there, verse five. Very familiar stuff here. This is talking about this Jesus taking on flesh, fully, uh, truly man. Verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to grasp, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, uh, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, right? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Truly man. Come in the flesh. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews talks about the divinity of Christ in the first three verses. 
Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken us by, to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he has created the world. Get this. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the power of his word, or the word of his power. Jesus had to be man in order to take the place of men and die in their place. Do you understand? When, when God told Adam and Eve, if you sin, you will die, there was a death sentence on men that men had to pay for. Jesus became a man to die for that sentence. But he had to also be God to be a sacrifice great enough to satisfy God's holiness for all time and eternity for all people. A perfect sacrifice, one for time and eternity to settle it with God. And only Jesus was both God and man. Jesus is the only way because he lived a sinless life. And so, therefore, he qualifies as the only perfect sacrifice. Here's a couple other passages I'm certain you're familiar with. Hebrews 9 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, okay, here he's get the bigger and better, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Without blemish. Sinless life. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin, who what? Knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus alone was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus didn't die for his sin, but he died for other sins. God imputes our sin to Jesus, transfers to Jesus our guilty charge so that when Jesus dies in our place, all of the judgment of God's wrath on our sin, every one of them in your lifetime and everyone who would believe was being exacted on Christ. That's what the text says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He stood in the bullseye of God's wrath for us. 1 Peter 2 he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Jesus is the only way. Jesus alone triumphs over sin and death. Perhaps you remember how Paul talks about the problem of sin, that all of us are sinners. No one's good, not even one. No one's righteous. And the wages of sin is what? Yeah, yeah, well, you don't get out of that. That's a true statement. All of us are sinners, and what you earn for being a sinner is death. Jesus died our death, and he rose again, defeating sin's consequence never to die again. That's why we have a hope of eternal living, because of Christ's work. Why is Jesus the only way? Because he's the only one to overcome the grave. Others have claimed, you know this, to be a savior, a type of savior, another direction, another hope. Jesus rose from the grave. And the resurrection proves that he was who he said he was and did what he said he would do. You get this, right? The resurrection is what the world tries to deny because the resurrection means authority. If Jesus rose from the dead, it doesn't matter what you think or what you feel. And that's where this thing called authority and truth comes to play because we'd like to push him off to the margins and call him one of the many, but he doesn't give you that option. If he rose from the dead, he has authority to speak a better word over everything, and that's confession. The resurrection means that he is the truth, that he is God. 
and this is where it really kind of the brass tacks happens, crucified men who stay crucified are no threat whatsoever. It's only ones who rise to the dead that bother us. Because then they get to talk. And then they get to instruct. And then they get to say things about our life and the ways in which we live by idols and control the world. And Resurrection totally changes everything. Here's why salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. Because the problem isn't out there. Although our culture is very good at pointing the finger. Look up for a second. The problem is in here. Not out there. That's why Jesus has to be the only way. Our problem doesn't require surgery. That would be nice, right? I've been going to a doctor recently to check on my heart to see if there's anything in there. And good news, there's a heart, so... Um, <laughs> Our problem can't be fixed by a doctor. We need a resurrection. Our problem doesn't need addressing. <laughs> it needs righteousness, because I'm a sinner. Our problem doesn't need God to just be appeased. It's God's wrath for my sin that needs to be satisfied. Jesus took it for us. Do you understand what I'm saying, church? He's the only way. Our problem needs Jesus. It's the confession, it's the statement, it's the message of Peter to these people who are resisting the resurrection. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. Emphatic, you must be saved. There isn't your salvation, there isn't another truth, there isn't another way. You can't measure sincerity or even the goodness you see horizontally between people. You will stand before the Father, either he is true or he is a liar. And that's our confession, Jesus alone and no one else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father. No one knows salvation. No one has hope. And you can keep adding, except through him. Amen? That's our confession. And let's thank God for it this morning. Lord God, I... Uh, I know this, that I'm not smart enough to arrive at these conclusions, nor do I think any man is. Your word talks about the condition of our hearts without help, that we are blind and we are unresponsive and dead in our sins. And so your gospel is foolishness to, the, to those of us who don't know you. And yet you... You love in such a grand way. Your grace superabounds for us. And so we now know how it happens. It's the work of Christ. Christ alone. It's who we place our trust in, Father. It's no other confession. There is no other name. There is no other way or other truth, Lord, in a, in a world that wants to make everything subjective and a thousand truths for a thousand people, Father, that just isn't true. There is one way. There's one Savior. There's one Lord of glory. There's one creator of all. We, uh, we're not smart enough, like I said, to come to that. You've done that in us. So God, is, as your church, we confess it. We're thankful for it. We call it good news.